you still have people saying there's not, not enough there to get Trump. And then there's a whole group of people who say there may be enough there to get him, but you can't indict a sitting president. Yeah. So what good is it? And his, his base won't care what they have on him or what anybody alleges he did. They're never going to desert him. Never going to desert that guy. This is Sam. This is Paul. And this is Southpaw. Today, we have a special guest. We have Tom Petruno. Hi, Tom. Hello. Yeah. So, Tom, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Um, I was a journalist for about 35 years, um, a business journalist. And from 1990 to 2011, I was a Los Angeles Times uh, financial columnist. Left there in 2011 and been freelancing since then. So my background is economics, markets, and uh, obviously pay close attention to politics. But 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 my my bulk of my knowledge is with regard to markets and the economy. You didn't start out at LA Times, right? You were also at some other papers. No, I started out. Well, my job before the LA Times was at USA Today back in the 80s. I was part of the the team that launched that paper back in 1982. So that was pretty exciting um, when people didn't understand. The internet was coming down the pike, um, and would destroy you know print publications. So, but that that was exciting enough to be on the on the launch of USA Today. And then I came here in 1990 to LA. Why did baby boomers ruin the world, Tom? <laughs> why did baby boomers ruin the world? Why did you, Why did you guys do that? <laughs> why did we ruin the world? Look, uh, the boomers that that bulge of population was in the right place at the right time when the reagan when the occasions of the reagan but when the economy began to boom in the early 1980s you had all these boomers who were in great position to want to spend money um now this was in the days don't forget when you know inflation peaked at like 13 percent annualized in, in 1979 or 1980 so what that meant was um you were getting big raises, you know, you were getting, you know, raises of, of five to seven to eight or 9%, right? So the economy starts taking off and you have this huge population of boomers who were in a position to spend money. Um, and that's what they did. And that was, you know, the, 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 the pig moving through the snake, right? Um, it was an incredible time when um, it just seemed like everybody was making money the unemployment rate was plummeting in the in the eighties. Was the middle class at that point still very strong? I wouldn't say it was strong, but um, you know what happened under Reagan was that was when the federal government really began to borrow huge amounts. And funny how it turned out that baby boomers also started borrowing like crazy because the banks would lend to them, right? It's like anybody could get a credit card in those days. Um, so you just had this confluence of events, but, but, you know, people who want to want to believe that Reagan saved the economy in a sense, he did, but he did it with borrowed money. There were no gigantic budget deficits until Reagan. So to explain it to people, how does the government borrow money? Uh, how does the government borrow money? They sell bonds. And um, what you had in those days, believe it or not, the government was paying, I want to say, 
in the early 1980s, they had to pay something like 15% annual interest to borrow in a 30-year bond. Can you imagine making 15% interest today on a bond? The reason was that inflation was in double digits then, but coming down rapidly, right? So the government just starts borrowing because they could, selling bonds, taking the cash in. That was the Reagan defense buildup, right? That's primarily where, where, where the money went. Um, and uh, so if it was okay for the government to borrow like crazy, it was okay for boomers to start borrowing. Corporations started borrowing. That was the beginning of the junk bond boom back then. It's not just American citizens who could buy, right? At this point, when you when the government starts selling bonds or notes. Oh, sure. Anybody can buy. So other countries, oh, is oh, that absolutely. where it started? Where yeah, they started absolutely. buying up absolutely. our debt? Under Reagan, the U.S. in the 1980s, the U.S. went from being the largest creditor nation, meaning other people owed us. We, by the end of the 1980s, were the largest debtor nation, which meant we owed other people because of the bond borrowing boom. A lot of credit is given to Reagan during this time for the bull market. And when we talk about bull market, we're not talking necessarily everybody's quality of life improved. We're talking more of the stock market, your bread and butter, the stuff that you cover, right? But how much of that was because of Reagan and how much of that was because of Jimmy Carter and Volcker? Well, my view has always been that Jimmy Carter sacrificed his presidency basically by appointing Volcker head of the Federal Reserve. And what the Fed did um, in the late 70s and early 80s was um, drove the economy into a very deep recession. Um, in fact, it was it's basically two back-to-back recessions there. And Volcker did this by jacking up short-term interest rates into the low 20%, meaning you could, if you were in a money market mutual fund, which is basically a risk-free investment, right? You were earning 20% on your money by the late 1970s, early 1980s. The Volcker, Paul Volcker, then the head of the Fed, did this to basically choke inflation. He wanted to basically start a, or have a recession so bad that we, we'd essentially start over again with the economy. So we'd break that, break that, that idea that people had in the late 70s, which was that the price of anything was going to be higher tomorrow, right? Because what they were witnessing was double-digit inflation, like I said, 13% inflation on the consumer price index. So what he wanted to do, what Volcker wanted to do was break the back of inflation by convincing people that inflation would not continue to increase. But to do that, he had to basically destroy the economy. Um, That was the beginning of a lot of massive layoffs in a lot of industries in the U.S. in the early 1980s. So for listeners, explain what inflation is and two, explain what type of economy that Jimmy Carter and subsequently Volcker had to inherit to do all these things. Well, one catalyst for why inflation began to rise. When we talk about inflation, we talk about usually the consumer price index, which the government monitors. And um, so inflation is basically they're measuring a basket of goods and services. How much does the prices go up every year? So most people think inflation is just the value of the dollar, but it's more complicated than that. Well, right. And, and an inflation mentality is, is when, again, when people start to believe that prices will only go up, then what you have is um, no one's really planning for the future. You're just going to buy stuff now, right? You, and so by the late 70s, um, what you had was an inflation mentality. Now, if you had a job, it actually was damn good for you because the higher inflation went, as I mentioned earlier, you were going to get a bigger raise. 
the question was, was your raise bigger than what the inflation rate was? The, the root of this uh, was the oil crisis in the mid-1970s, or one of the roots of it, when oil prices quadrupled overnight. So just to clarify for people who aren't expert in this field, a lot of people think inflation is just a dollar going down. But in fact, what you're saying is, is the price of goods going up, which subsequently is the same as the dollar going down. Losing, you're losing purchasing power. But it's yeah. cause and effect is that way. Yes. Yeah. You're losing. In other words, um, if all you have is a dollar, um, the purchasing power of that dollar is going to decline by whatever the inflation rate goes up by, right? If prices go up three to five, three to five percent to ten percent, whatever the inflation goes up by, your purchasing power declines. So basically, inflation then is the amount of increase in the price of goods. Exactly, goods and services. Right. Now, so I was a clerk in in a in a drugstore in the uh, in, in in high school in the early nineteen seventies, mid nineteen seventies, and I remember we used to get in every week um, a list of price increases on stuff we were selling, whether it was aspirin or soda or shampoo or whatever. Prices were rising so fast on some goods and services then. And in those days, you had a machine that would crank out a, a, a sticker that had the price on something, right? It wasn't, there wasn't a scanning thing then. You had to manually program this, this little sticker machine with whatever the price of the good was. And I remember we were sometimes raising prices on goods in the grocery store, you know, two or three times a month. That's what was happening was that companies couldn't raise the price fast enough because their cost of goods, for example, the price of the ingredients or whatever it was they were making was rising fast. So let's zoom in on that. Why was that happening? And what era was this? This was mid 70s, early, mid, early to mid 70s. So one of the catalysts was uh, the quadrupling of oil prices. If you remember the Arab oil embargo, or you remember reading about this. Um, a lot of our listeners might be young, so explain it might that. Be, well, it was basically the, the, the conflict in the Middle East, um, the U.S. supporting Israel and the Arab states in those days, of course, wanting to destroy Israel. The Arab states had basically control of the oil market. And as punishment, essentially, to the West for its support of Israel, they began to sharply raise oil prices. A lot of... Uh financial blogs, they talk about that as if everybody understands that connection, how oil connects to the price of everything, but it might not be clear to everybody. So how does that relate to goods? Well, first of all, you have to think about oil and energy generally being a, a, a cost for any business, right? So your, your cost of, if you own a fleet of trucks, for example, you're a trucking company in the mid-1970s and oil quadruples in a matter of, of months or, or, or a couple of years, suddenly your cost to transport goods has gone up dramatically. What do you do? You have to raise your rates, right? As a trucker, you raise your rates to customers who are paying you to bring the goods to them. Um, those customers are paying, are paying more. They have to raise the price to you. Think of it as a box of shampoo, right? That has to get to the store. And suddenly you're the trucking company transporting the box of shampoo. Your costs go up. You raise the cost to your customer. What do they have to do? Pass it on to consumers. So oil was a, was a central part of this because oil and energy is part of everything. Making uh, anything in, involves energy. So for people to better understand, whenever we purchase a good, priced into the price of that good is the amount that it costs to ship and the cost, energy it costs. Cost to make, cost to ship, cost to advertise, right? So we're always paying for oil or, and energy in that price. Exactly. So right. as that cost goes up, the price of that good goes up. 
Well, otherwise, whoever's making or distributing that product can't make a profit. Okay. So it, all these inputs, as we call them, go into what determines the final price, including the profit margin. So, so this begins in the mid 1970s. And as I say, I'm a clerk in a in a, in a drugstore, and I'm and I'm every week it seems I'm putting a new price on a bottle of shampoo because the prices just kept rising and rising. So by the time the late 70s come around, inflation had gone from uh, I don't know what it was, 4% in the early 1970s to an annualized rate of 13% by the late 70s. So you can see why at that point, you would start to fear hyperinflation. Hyperinflation is, is the inflation where things don't just go up 13% a year, things would rise 50%, 100%, 1000%. Your currency at that point becomes basically worthless. What you see in Venezuela today is an example. So Jimmy Carter uh, realizing that this was a serious issue, that if that if, a, if inflation started to run away or people's perception of inflation starts to run away, you'd, you'd destroy your economy. Points Volcker to head the Federal Reserve and Volcker just basically, you know, brings the hammer down on the economy. He saves the economy. He saves the economy, but it's the kind of, you know, burn the village to save it. They had to burn the parts of the economy out in order to save it, to, to, to halt that inflation mentality, to make people realize or, or, or hope that um, they weren't going to have to pay much more tomorrow for something if they waited to buy. You can't, if you're a company and inflation is rocketing higher every year, how do you plan for anything? How do you plan for production? How do you plan for, you know, once that mentality takes hold, you, you essentially, it's like pouring acid on the economy. It just, it just burns everything out. No one can plan for the future. So was it just OPEC or was it also things like that was happening under Nixon or Ford. It was more than just OPEC. Um, you know, have you heard the phrase guns and butter? No. Well, in the 1960s, as the Vietnam War was really beginning to, to rage, um, you had President Lyndon Johnson, who basically told the country, um, we can have guns and butter. We can have good times at home, meaning butter. We can also finance this war. Uh, that's when the U.S. began to borrow, not on the scale of Reagan, but Johnson was telling us we could have these two things and we really couldn't. And that was setting the scene for inflation. You also had very powerful unions back then. So what you had was when oil prices quadruple in the mid-1970s, the unions, for example, at the steel companies or at the automakers, negotiating contracts on behalf of their workers of course, they're going to demand much higher wages, right, to make up for, for what their 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 uh, workers are feeling in terms of inflation. You get a price, you get a, a wage price spiral going, which is prices go up, wages go up, prices go up even more as companies have to pay their workers more, wages go up even more. That price spiral or wage price spiral is what the Fed fears more than anything, even to this day, because if you get that going, it becomes very hard to stop it. Let's pinpoint that a little bit. The Fed does have a fear of increased wage growth. Some people say they have a, a, a sick fear of increased wage growth. Which is something we want, but the Fed fears. Exactly. Exactly. So let's, let's, let's fast forward to where we are today. As the government measures wages, the average wage increase for workers, um, that rate in the most recent month was 3.1% year over year. Now, that doesn't sound like a lot, right? But if you're the Fed 
and you're now looking at wage growth of 3% a year, you start to get nervous. I shouldn't say we do, they do. They start to get nervous about this idea of a wage price spiral. Now, it might seem ridiculous. And to workers, this is the Fed's biggest PR problem. Just as workers begin to see wages rise, right, over the 3% level on an annualized basis, the Fed is saying we need to raise interest rates more to slow the economy down so we don't get an inflation spiral. If you're the average person or even the above average person in this economy, you just now start to feel like you're getting a bigger piece of the pie and they're going to shut it down by raising interest rates more dramatically. This is where Trump has got the average person on his side. You know, he's 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 really upset with the Fed. and He appointed the Fed chairman, Jerome Powell. He's upset with the Fed for continuing to raise short term interest rates, which they've been doing now since late 2015. He thinks it, they don't need to do this. And it's hard to convince an average worker, you know, why just as they start to get a little more, right, a bigger piece of the pie, here comes the Federal Reserve saying, you can't have any more. We're going to have to slow this down so that wage growth doesn't get out of hand. Do you think a 3% year-over-year raise is out of hand? Doesn't sound like it to me, but that's what they're afraid of. And so it's this inflation, wage, price spiral boogeyman that still haunts the Fed to this day. Let's take the side of the Fed for a second. What happens if they capitulate to Trump and stop raising interest rates? Well, and, and by the way, they very well might. I mean, they're hinting that they meet uh, December 17th and 18th or 18th and 19th or late, later this month. And the betting even a month ago was that they were going to raise their, their key short-term interest rate again. Now, um, partly because of what's happening in the stock market, you know, the market is very upset about lots of things and, and is down pretty sharply in the last couple months. Um, and because of the political pressure from, from Trump, the Fed has been hinting lately in, in, in some of the board members' speeches that they may wait. They may, instead of hiking in December as the markets had expected, they may wait now until January or February or March. Um, so what happens? Um, from the, from a, the market standpoint, the greatest danger of the Fed capitulating here to Trump is that the bond market in particular, in other words, bond buyers <clears throat> begin to fear that the Fed has become totally politicized, meaning uh, they'll do whatever the president tells them. And they're supposed to be apolitical. They're supposed to be apolitical. They're supposed to only look out for the good of the economy um, and, in theory, the, the good of the worker. So um, one risk, probably the biggest risk is that in the bond market right now, you have people who are buying, when the government sells a 30-year treasury bond, right? Um, government's going to pay about 3.1% a year in interest on that 30-year treasury bond. So that's not very much. Um, and it's actually come down in the last couple months. But if you're a bond investor you're, and you're buying a 30-year or even a 10-year or five-year security, that's a fixed interest rate, right? What is your greatest fear? Your greatest fear is that inflation in the future could rise at a rate that completely eats up the interest you're earning. So the danger is if, and again, because we're such a huge borrower, right? We we're borrowing like crazy again, a trillion dollars this year, right? And, and a lot of that is, is purchased by foreigners. Um, if you suddenly think that inflation, which is still only running about uh, 2.1% uh, by the 
measure the Fed like. So 2.1% annual inflation. But if you fear that the Fed is giving up on trying to control inflation um, and uh, you start to fear that maybe two or three years down the road, inflation could be running instead of a 2% at a 4% annual rate, right? You bought a 30-year treasury bond that pays 3.1% a year, and that's all it's going to pay. If inflation goes to 4% a year, you own a bond paying 3.1%. Guess what? You're losing almost a percentage point of purchasing power, right? So you got suckered into buying a bond that's only going to pay that fixed rate for whatever it is, 5, 10 years, 30 years. If the bond market starts to fear, I should say, if bond investors start to fear that the Fed isn't going to look out for higher inflation, what's the first thing they're going to do? They're going to say, you know what, Uncle Sam, you want to borrow from me on a 30-year bond? You want me to give you money for 30 years? I don't want 3.1%. I want 5%. That's the danger. That's the thing that the Fed fears most is that investors start to say, I don't trust you. And I'm, you want me to hold this 30-year bond, I want a higher rate of interest because I'm afraid you're going to let inflation get out of, con- out of control down the pike. A lot of people, this might be a little bit confusing to them. So let's put it into real practical terms. How would that, like if they don't own any stocks or bonds and these things are happening in the market, how would that affect their day-to-day? Um, well, the way it would affect them would be if you're, in a, you're an educated person with a really good job and your employer really needs you, right? If inflation starts to go up or people fear it's starting to go up, you might actually be okay. You might get a bigger raise because of that, right? But the average person, uh, you know, isn't served by higher inflation. Let's say you own no financial assets. You don't own stocks. You don't own bonds. All you got is savings in the bank earning 1%. And you have debt. And you have debt, which is the worst thing, right? Um, Right, right now to be buried in debt. However, actually, if you have a load of debt and inflation rises, it's actually a good thing for you because you owe that debt, assuming it's a fixed rate debt, right? Assuming it's a fixed rate. Assuming it's a, it's a fixed rate debt. And a lot of things are not fixed. Exactly right. Exactly. But if it is fixed rate, you're actually, you're, you'll be paying with dollars that um, are worth less, but you're, you're, you're paying them back to somebody. If inflation rises, the person who suffers is the person who's the creditor, not the debtor. However, if you're just a consumer, right, you don't have a lot of debt, uh, and you're not in a job where you can count on a uh, you know, significant wage increase every year, inflation goes up, you, you may well be screwed. You could, you could go back to that, you know, look, look back to that era of the late 70s, people who were in jobs where they weren't getting decent raises and price of goods and services is rising every year, your purchasing power is declining. That was the beginning of the hollowing out of the middle class was in the 1970s. Are we seeing that again now or is what we're going through today different than what we saw earlier, like you mentioned? Um, I think it's different today. I think the problems in the economy are more structural with regard to, um, you know, there are, there's, there's demand for workers um, who have skills that aren't easily replicated. So a PhD in chemical engineering or something, right? Um, but even though the unemployment rate is, is still very low, you've still got a problem of, of a lot of people can't find good jobs, meaning w- well-paying jobs where they can count on wages going up over time. That's still a, a real problem. And so in that sense, I think, and this is what got Trump elected, was people still fearing that the middle class is being hollowed out. 
that there's still very little opportunity um, for a lot of people to find a good job that they can count on, as opposed to a job that's going to be automated out of existence, right? Two years down the road, which is which is happening, obviously, and is still a you know a great fear for a lot of people in the middle class. It's like, how can I even stay ahead of the technology curve? There's a lot of fears people have, especially of next year and the year after of doomsday scenarios, right? A lot of people are saying with the deficit growing and the U.S. government borrowing more and more money and spending while slashing taxes, we're headed for an economic disaster similar to 09, maybe not as bad. How likely is that? Well, recession, you can almost argue we're overdue. Um, and recessions, uh, which is normally defined as two consecutive quarters where the economy doesn't grow, but it actually shrinks. And is that looking at GDP? Looking at GDP, gross domestic product, right. So um, look, the, last, the 2008 financial crisis, the, the, the root of that was, of course, the housing market in the US, where prices got incredibly inflated, crashed. You had banks making all these ridiculous mortgages. The financial system was in danger of, of actually collapsing by late 2008. And the Fed steps in and the government steps in with you know, these spending programs. Explain to people how close we were to the brink. Like A lot of people don't realize how bad that was. And we're back to jolly old good times again. But how it close was, were we uh, to? And I, and I was still at the LA Times and reporting on this. And I can assure you, by in the fall of 2008, we were as close to an economic collapse as, as since the 1930s, because what had happened was, as people began to realize that that a lot of banks were going to go under because of the mortgage debts, um, suddenly you had banks not willing to lend to each other. And this is the way the economy works is, and, and the banking system works is, banks lend to each other all the time, right overnight. Uh, I need, I need, you know, I'm, I'm short on my books this particular day. I need to borrow a little bit of money overnight. What had happened was that the banks were so afraid of lending just to another bank um, that the whole system was freezing up and banks were fearful they couldn't get a hold of whatever money they needed to be uh, solvent at the end of the day. So what do they do? They turn around to their business borrowers and say, you had a line of credit with us, right? The you know, line of credit just keeps your business going, pays, pays wages, tides you over while you're waiting for, for uh, people to make payments to you for your goods or services. The banks start saying to companies, we can't, your, your credit lines cancel. We can't afford to lend you even overnight because we're not sure if we're going to have enough money. Imagine you know, the, the, the image of a, of, a, of a finely tuned machine with gears turning and you throw sand in there, right? And the gears suddenly lock up. And that is what was happening. The system of trust was falling the apart. The system of trust was completely, uh, was on the verge of breaking for good. And the money is what greases the, make, it makes the economy go, right? I mean, short-term money, overnight money, everybody's, you know, it's like you want to be solvent at the end of the day. The banks weren't sure they'd be solvent at the end of the day. They start cutting off their business customers. Businesses suddenly that had nothing horrendously wrong with their own business weren't sure they could make payroll the next week because they weren't sure they could get tap the credit line. So we were very close to a catastrophe. And that is why the Fed stepped in the way it did in, in the fall of 2008 and basically told the banks, 
we'll make you whole. You can come and borrow from us. We'll take care of this. Don't worry about it. They cut interest rates to zero, right? You know, the overnight short-term interest rates are basically zero. And at the time, I think, you know, if you had a decent job and you weren't in danger of being laid off, a lot of people thought, well, this seems crazy. What, what do they see that, that we don't see? Well, they saw a lot. They saw the system on the verge of locking up. And here's the problem. <laughs> if, you, if you suddenly have the complete breakdown of your financial system, it's very hard to get it going again, right? You can't, it takes a long time to get the sand out of the gears, right? They knew that if the system imploded, um, it could have been game over and this would have spread globally and it already was, was spreading globally. So, so we were very, very close to, to the brink and, you know, watching it back then, um, I was terrified that, you know, I, I was watching the, the end of capitalism as we knew at the end of the financial system. The solution itself was quantitative easing, right? Well, that came later. Quantitative easing, which is basically um, the Fed not just doing its job of setting short-term interest rates, but the Fed being willing to buy bonds from the government and maybe anybody else, right, in order to be the, the, the lender of last resort. They were giving the government money, essentially. S essentially. They were giving the government. Now, they were doing it in the form of a bond, which means the government had to pay them. But you know the way the Federal Reserve the Federal Reserve acts as 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 in tandem with the with the Treasury, even though the Fed is independent, right? So the Fed under quantitative easing starts buying all these bonds. They're earning interest on them. Guess what they do with the interest? They hand it back to the Treasury. Doesn't this seem ridiculous? You're going to buy your bonds, then you're going to pay interest. The Treasury's going to pay interest to the Fed, and the Fed hands the money back to the Treasury. That's what was going on. And the reason they were doing that was that. They wanted to be sure that people trusted that the government could be the lender of last resort. And in essence, the Fed was the lender of last resort, which is partly their role. When no one else will lend money, the Fed will create it out of thin air and lend it in order to keep exactly. the system going. So fast forward to today, and now people have fears of even the solution we came up with back then, that it's all kind of a Band-Aid and we're heading to a bigger catastrophe. Well, yes. Now- could it happen? Of course it could happen, but it's, it's, not, it's, not, it's certainly not going to happen the way it did back then. You know, you're not going to have lightning strike. In other words, the problem today is, is not crazy mortgages in the housing market. There are, there are some, but for the most part, that's not the issue. Even though we now see housing prices coming down in many parts of the country, this is unlikely to be a real estate-led crash. Okay, We already did that, got that over with. That, that's not going to happen again. And actually, the banks, for the most part, are in, are in very good shape today compared to what shape they were in 2008. Government made them raise a lot more capital. In other words, a, more of a, a cushion there to, 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 that they could absorb losses on loans. Okay, so, so then what else could come along that could cause a crisis on the scale of 2008? Well, that's a that's a thing you almost never know, right? You can't see it coming. It's often something out of left field. So that's what people, the market, stock market's looking at today. It's like, well, what what could get us this time? What what could do us in? One area that is worrisome is corporate borrowing. A lot of companies have borrowed incredible amounts of money over the last um, ten years, or really since the financial crash. Um, companies were actually in good financial shape, a lot of them in, in that crash. So they didn't, they didn't have a lot of debt on their books, but since then they bought, they, they've sold a lot of debt. Guess what they've used it for? Buying back stock, right? 
the way it's supposed to work is, you know, saying, why, why should a company buy its own stock in the marketplace, right? Why should they do that? Well, their argument is, you, we, if we don't have anything better to spend our money on, why not buy our own stock in the open market, shrink the amount of stock outstanding so the remaining shareholders have a bigger piece of the pie? So was that always an option or is it something that you've seen happen more recently? Um, buybacks have always been an option for companies, right? Again, On this scale or? But not on this scale. Okay. Right. The, the scale is humongous now. And um, that is an area that, that is worrisome to a lot of people is the idea that you have corporate debt at levels where if the economy really slows drastically or we go into recession, our company is going to be able to pay their debts. Right. Um, and then what? Then what? It's one thing if the banking system is falling apart. But uh, what that led to, of course, was the bailout of GM right back in, in 2008. Well, can you imagine if uh, we reach a point where the Fed has to look at, at some of the biggest companies and say, well, are we going to lend to them as a lender of last resort to, to you know, keep them going? Are we going to ask them to file for bankruptcy and then like we did with GM and then immediately you know, ba bail them out? It seems far-fetched, and yet everything that happened in 07, 08 seemed far-fetched, right? But, but it, ha it happened. So that's one area where I think the stock market is a little freaked out now, wondering about if corporate debt level, if that's, if that's the real problem that hit us next. Certainly the student loan situation is grim. You have what about a tri more than a trillion dollars in student loans out there? Yeah, it's at one point five recently. One point five trillion dollars, right? And the bulk of that has built up since two thousand eight. People did, kids did the logical thing. I can't find a job in that economy in two thousand seven, two thousand eight. I'm going to go back to school. I'm going to I'm going to borrow your student loans. I'm going to go. I'm going to get some skills, and I'm gonna, then I'm going to come into the job market. But what we have today is a burden of debt on young people that it, it is just not sustainable. Now, a lot of these are, of course, federally guaranteed loans, right? But I think one of the questions here is, have we reached a point where the next bailout is not going to be the banks per se, but it's going to be student debtors, right? Now, if, you, if, if the Democrats want to run on a platform in 2020 that says we're going to wipe out a big portion of this debt, imagine the votes they get for that, right? But Who's going to pay for that then, right? Does the government just forgive those debts? That then gets added to the government's own deficits, which are running wild again. It's not just student debt, though, right? There's also car, automobile again. Auto is a, and yes, I'm glad you brought that up because um, <laughs> the auto debt situation is ridiculous. The loans people are taking out to buy cars, right? Are, are the amount of loans some of them would have taken out to buy housing in the late 70s. It, it's absurd. Um, but whose problem is that ultimately? Well, that again could be the auto company's problem, right? And are we going to have another situation where the government has to step in and bail out GM because people can't pay their car loans back? That's certainly something you got to think about. And if you look at the way the stock market treats auto stocks today, it doesn't treat them very well. Those stocks have been battered like crazy. So the next crisis, if it's going to be a debt crisis, it's likely to be corporate debt, um, maybe auto loans. And at some point, student, I mean, I don't see any alternative it's to, to forgiving some amount of student debt ultimately. You, you can't have an economy if kids 
and, and as they get into their 20s and 30s, don't have the money to spend on anything because they're, too, they're, they're paying back the student, lo student loans. So let's say you were able to provide policy solutions for students and borrowing for colleges. Would this be something that you would try to, or how would you prevent it from happening in the first place? And what would your solution be? Well, you can't, there's no preventing it in the first place. You, you would have had to say no, you know, eight or 10 or five years ago to anybody who was, wanted to borrow money, right, for, for education. You would have had to say no. Well, no, the system is set up so that you've got federally guaranteed loans and we want to encourage people to get educated. So, you know, what's the policy now? I mean, if, it, if we basically say, if we agree that these kids don't have a shot in life with the, these kind of debt burdens, then as a country, do we essentially say, you know what, let's just all help pay the bill. Let's socialize these debts, meaning as taxpayers, we basically say, you know, we're going to forgive this. We're going to give you a break. Somebody's got to pay. And if it's the federal government that pays, right, by forgiving the debt, um, then we pay as taxpayers ultimately, in but, theory at least. But it is socialized because it's ultimately backed by the federal government. So the government is guaranteeing it. So if the students can't pay, the government will step in like they did with Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. Right. But but then the question is, well, what are we going to do with these kids? Well, suddenly I can't pay my student loan. You know, what do you like put them in debtor prison? Are we going to go back to the Middle Ages? You know, I mean, is there is there should there be some kind of penalty? Whose debt should get forgiven here? Right. I mean, I mean, when you start getting into this issue of forgiving debt, where do you draw the line? Who should have to pay and who should not have to pay? The point I'm trying to make is that if something like that happens where in the future we have to forgive debt. That wasn't something that happened that day that they forgave the debt. That ball started rolling years and years ago when they first implemented that the government would back these debts in the first place. Sure, absolutely. So that was a problem that I'm sure somebody thought about. What if this happens and we have to forgive debt? No, I don't think anybody did think about that. I ah. mean, the, the, <laughs> the fact was we, we think investing in education is a good thing. So the government has made more and more available via student loans. Um, it was a good thing, but you know, did, did anybody really think, uh, eight years ago that we'd be at one and a half trillion in student? No, we were, I think go, like 700 billion going into the, re the recession in, in 07, 08. So, um, it's just gotten to a level where, uh, you know, we have to make decisions as a society. Uh, you won't have much consumption out of these, <laughs> you know, consumption is what makes the economy go buying goods and services. You're not going to have that if these kids don't have money to spend because they're too busy paying back their student loans every month. So you said earlier debt crisis, and that's one way to shock the economy. But debt crisis isn't the only way, right? Especially with the stock market, there's always a certain level of paranoia in the stock market, right? And we've been- There should be, but I mean, you're going to make an argument in the last couple of years, people weren't very paranoid about anything. Market just kept going up and up. Exactly. So now stock markets should be somewhat related to real value or real earnings. And they're astronomically much higher, the valuations of some of these companies and the stock prices. Now, what happens, let's say next year, when you start seeing some corrections where the prices of these stocks start going down? Can then the stock market, Wall Street, start affecting Main Street? Because they're not always related, but they can be related. And when I say Main Street, I mean the regular person who may not own stocks, but can their pay, their employment, can those things be affected? Yes, absolutely. Let, let's, just, let's just back up a little bit. So 
Um, right now, the Dow Jones Industrial Average, which everybody knows is a gauge of stock prices, is down 9.5% from its record high, which was just set a couple months ago. So a 10% drop in stock prices over the last couple months. That is, it may sound like a lot. It's not technically a lot in the scheme of things, right? Um, but if if the market gets much worse, let's say instead of down 10% of the Dow, let's say the market continues to fall in December and then we get into the new year and the market falls further. And then and the Dow suddenly is down, let's say 21% from its high. Well, then you have what is officially a bear market, meaning people say the market's in, um, it's it's pulling back to a level where this starts to get concerning, right? So let's say stock prices are down 20% as we go into January or February. So you don't own stocks. So you sit there and say, well, I don't really care about this. This isn't affecting me. So stock prices are down. But in the executive suites of all these major companies, they're watching their stock go down, which means their stock options, which is what creates the bulk of their wealth, right? Their stock options are becoming worthless, right? So the stock market's dropping and you're in a, you're, as cheap, you're the chief executive and you're watching your stock drop and you start to think, man, I got to do something here. I got, I got to show the market that our, they shouldn't knock our stock down another 20% or 30% or whatever. So what do you do? You, you say, I'm gonna, we're going to cut costs. You know, the market's down and we're not in recession yet, but we're afraid maybe the stock market is telling us that we're going into recession. We got to cut costs now. We got to take some action right now. How do you cut costs? What's the number one cost of almost any company? Employees. Not energy, not the cost of an office building, labor, right? So what do you do if you're the chief executive? You announce we're going to lay off 10% of our people. 15% of our people, 20%, whatever it is. You announce a cost-cutting measure. So suddenly you're an employee and you didn't do anything wrong. You don't own stock, but you're going to suffer because you're, the company fears that the stock market falling is telling you the economy is going to hell, right? This, I think, this worries me almost more than anything these days because what we saw happen in 2008, 2009, was the financial system was collapsing, as we talked about in late 2008. A lot of companies, you get into those first few months of 2009, which was Obama's first uh, term, and they start laying off people like crazy. I mean, the economy was losing on the order of almost, I think, a million jobs a month. It was incredible what was happening. Companies were cutting staff, whether they even thought they needed to, they was, were so unsure about what was going to happen in the economy. And, and again, the financial system was, was close to collapse. They're cutting people like crazy. This is a point that I think a lot of people don't realize, how financial markets affect their daily life. You saw problems in the financial market. We had this uh, problem with, the, with bad debts in financial institutions like banks. You had the problem with uh, the interest rates and people not lending and the system of trust falling apart. But in Main Street, in regular life, people were still buying goods. So you think, well, but people are still buying goods, so I should have a job, right? Because I'm buying goods from this company, so the company is making money. But that was an example where sometimes it's not enough that you're still buying the same amount as you were before, and people were still buying stuff. Stuff still needed to be made. Stuff still needed to be done, and people were still getting laid off. The recession ends 
in mid-2009. Officially, the, the economy started growing again in the second half of 2009. So let's just say you were a company that laid off 20% of its staff in early 2009. And so you cut your costs dramatically, right? All, all those labor costs of those people out the window, right? You don't have to pay that anymore because you laid those people off. Economy starts to recover in the second half of 2009. Do you think those people got hired back? Hell no. Because what happened was, and as many workers can, can attest if they think back to those days, companies slashed staff and everybody else picked up the slack. You, you know, if you had to work another two or three hours a day, right, to keep your employer, you know, in business, you did it. You worked harder. You worked your ass off, right? Whatever it was, whatever the company asked you to do, you worked harder. So the companies look around and they're like, you know what? Our people stepped up here, right? We cut 20% of our staff, but our 80% of the people that we kept are now doing the job of, you know, what the old 80 people doing the job of what 100 did a year earlier. That led to, of course, the slow improvement in job growth, right? From 2009 on, the jobless recovery, right? This is the end of the 40-hour work week. So if you're a CEO today, what do you, what do, you do? You look and say, you know what? We probably should just cut staff again, you know, do it, uh, uh, um, cut, cut now. Let's, let's get rid of, you know, lay off more people now in case something bad happens. So what happens then? You lay people off. The economy turns around, let's say, let's say we do get a recession or near recession in spring of next year. But by the fall of next year, the economy is recovering. Do you hire those people back? Probably not. Because again, your people who remain are going to step up. This is the biggest fear I have because I think a lot of companies thought last time we got away with this. We were able to, to, to get rid of people and our, our people worked their butts off and stepped up. Let's do it again. At some point, you know, how much is just too much of a workload on people physically, mentally, right? I would argue we're, we're still there. A lot of people still working really long hours who would love to have their, another employee helping them, right? So you've got a situation here where I fear companies will do what they did last time around and that that could precipitate a, a recession on its own, laying people off. Then you have not just the people who laid off don't have money to spend. Everybody else at the company is like, well, am I going to be laid off tomorrow? Maybe we should rein in our spending here. I think there's a risk that companies could drive the next recession if they pull the same thing they did last time around, which is let's just get rid of people. And if they learn that lesson once, hey, let's try it again. Workers are, you know, I mean, they're getting a bigger piece of the pie now, but my fear is it could stop very quickly in 2019. They're sitting right on the edge where they have a job, but it's not like a safe job. Well, I mean, a lot of, you know, again, we're talking about highly skilled workers. Their jobs are probably safe, a PhD in, in chemistry. But a lot of workers who um, don't have any specialized skills, um, you know, you let them go and you feel like you can hire somebody back, you know, if you really need to. But you'd prefer not to if you're current, if the people who remain step up and work even harder. And this was uh, the root of a lot of the, the incredible um, uh, joblessness and, and homelessness that followed the last recession, where when I say people are marginally attached to the economy, they didn't have a full-time job. They were in the gig economy. They were gigs, you know, like I'm a waiter and I also do uh, catering. Um, I got all these gigs. And those gigs are the first thing that stop when the economy starts to turn down. It's like, so if you're, you're, you're not an employee of one company with benefits, you're marginally attached, you're doing gigs. Those people are marginally attached. They're the first ones 
to lose those gigs and to suffer in a downturn. So have newspapers changed since when you started at LA Times and today when people get most of their information from digital or internet outlets? And what was the role of newspapers? Well, the role of newspapers until the internet was to be the gatekeepers of information. We were the ones who told you what you needed to know, or we thought you needed to know. The internet blew that, of course, out of the water. And now people can find, they can go on the internet and they can find information any, anywhere they want. So, the, so newspapers role, you know, very powerful role as a gatekeeper of information is gone in that sense. Um, talk about a business that has been hollowed out. I mean, the number of jobs lost as newspapers have, have shrunk um, is just incredible. The Los Angeles Times uh, number of journalists there, I think reached a peak of around 1100, something like that. And the in the good old days of the early 90s or mid 90s. And I think when I left the staff, it had been already cut in half to around five or 600 people. So you got to ask yourself, you're a news, oper a news operation and your staff is now one half of what it was 10 years earlier. Is the news 50% less than what it was 10 years earlier? No, there's more news than ever, right? So you've got uh, these once very powerful organizations that were the gatekeepers of information now trying to cover an ever expanding amount of news with a smaller and smaller group of people because the ads have disappeared from the newspapers. They all have websites, of course. Every major publication has a website, but web ads don't pay the freight. You know, a newspaper doesn't make off a web ad what it makes off an, uh, an ad in print. So um, in that sense, Trump was the greatest thing that could possibly happen to like the Washington Post and New York Times, uh, the TV networks, because he started a war with them. Um, and, it, and it is a war between the media, the, the so-called liberal media, media and, and Trump and the GOP. Um, he's been very good for their business. If you look at what's happened to New York Times and Washington Post online subscriptions, they've rocketed since Trump came to power. Because people feel like they need to know more than ever what's going on. Who's watching the government, right? But the greatest loser from the demise of newspapers is it's not Washington or even Wall Street coverage. There are plenty of people still covering those things. It's the loss of local paper, papers, small town papers, uh, papers in, in rural areas generally that either don't exist anymore or maybe have one person left as a reporter. Um, this is what scares me more than anything uh, about the future of our democracy, because, you know, the Washington Post slogan is uh, uh, democracy dies in darkness. Um, there will always be plenty of people covering the president, watching every move the president makes, every move Congress makes, right? But at the local level, let's say you live in a small town somewhere in Kansas, and um, you have a school board of people who are maybe elected, maybe not, but a school board, and you're, you're the one reporter left at some small paper, and you think there's incredible scandal there, financial scandal, something else is going on there that you think people need to know about. Does the paper have the resources to even put someone on that? My fear is nobody's watching politics at the local level, and that is where corruption can run rampant.
that is where where you know tax local taxpayers get ripped off that is where the system really begins to fail if you have politicians or or other people at the local level elected officials who feel as if nobody's watching cuz if nobody's watching you feel like you can get away with murder so that really bothers me i don't know that there's a solution to this i mean um you know local papers are are dying out like crazy you actually have you know huge areas of some states where there's there's no local news coverage um it'd be great if you could trust every elected official to always do the right thing if nobody's watching politicians can just run wild so to me that's the threat to our democracy is you know you look at latin america and you look at other failed economies and they and they're often failed because of the level of corruption rots within rots it from within that's my fear now is that we could be going down that path there's nobody watching and you remember the the LA Times ex- exposed that scandal in the um 2000 the city of bell where the the city manager in this little town a relatively little town of bell a suburb of LA was paying himself like a million dollars a year the LA Times breaks that story people go to jail right that's what you need newspapers for you need somebody watching these people to make sure they don't just go crazy with taxpayer money and if we're losing that we're losing you know a very you know a, a part of our democracy that if it erodes away um we're in trouble back in the day when LA Times had more money you guys had enough money to pay for somebody to just go and sit in at these uh, city council meetings to make sure there was nothing funny oh, going on or yeah. to chase stories, yeah, right? Absolutely. Corruption stories. Absolutely. You know, local school boards or, or county commissioners, whatever. Do they have still have that? <laughs> it's, you know, sharply winnowed down. It's not just the LA Times, but it's other, you know, local, even, you know, local weekly papers that had been in business that had had people go into these meetings just to watch out. And these aren't glamorous jobs. These are the least glamorous jobs is to cover a school board in some, some small town, right? Um, but there's very little of that left. There's very little of that left. When the internet was starting to boom, did you guys at the papers have a sense that you guys were in danger or it started kind of developing in your minds? Yes. It, 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 isn't as off, it isn't as if we didn't know this was coming. The worst thing that actually happened for newspapers um, was the uh, dot-com stock crash that began in in 1999 and 2000. And the reason was um, in the late 90s, you had the the internet begins to to become a thing. And so people are pouring money into every little dot-com that had, you know, not even not, not earnings, but not even sales. And people were talking about the death of newspapers and the death of big media because everyone's going to just, you know, all the internet is where it's at. The dot-com stocks crash in 2000. Tech stocks in general begin to crash. And people lose all their money on a lot of these dot-com stocks, right? And so what happens then by 2002 is the the major newspapers were still standing. We had weathered that, right? And all these little dot-com startups had died including news-related dot-com startups had died. So the major newspapers, to their, uh, uh, unfortunately, what a lot of them did was they thought, we have more breathing room now. We don't have to really develop the web part of our business because all these little competitors are gone now. So we're going to get a break in this. We can take our time. It was the worst thing to do was to then uh, and you know focus more on the paper product, not worry about building up your internet product. Yeah, you had a website, but it wasn't that developed. 
that really hurt because then by the time you get around to the to the late 2000s, it's clear that newspaper cir- paper circulation is continuing to decline, right? Um, more eyeballs are going to the internet and newspapers lost that period when they could have really built up their websites, built up the, the, the online news presence um, and then and, and just lost that momentum that they had. So today you have a situation again where, um, you know, thanks to Trump, <laughs> the, the mainstream newspapers, news organizations have a lot of eyeballs watching them. And again, not just the paper newspapers, but the websites, as I said, have, have grown dramatically, but they don't, it doesn't pay the freight. You know, web ads don't pay what print ads pay. So you still have a long-term challenge to uh, the newspaper business and, and to the media business generally is how do you make money? I know you mentioned that the internet has done a lot of harm to journalism and reporting, but do you think the free access of information and the ability for people to post their thoughts and their findings and do research, do you think it's also helped shed light on certain things that you might not have been able to find on your own? Because it could be that it would be hard for a reporter or two or even a team to find and discover some of these stories, but with the incredible access to information, they might be able to dig through, find papers and say, hey, this doesn't seem right. And then they could upload it to the internet, have different people say, hey, what do you think? And then it spreads like wildfire, whether it's on Reddit and people share it on their blogs or podcasts. Do you think there's some silver lining to that? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I would never, ever sit here and argue that, you know, we should go back to the old days of the newspapers and big media companies control the media. And, and you know, you, you you only read what we tell you to read. But first of all, we, ne- it, we can't put the genie back in the bottle. But um, no, the Internet is it, it's both the greatest invention uh, of mankind, you could argue, because it spreads knowledge everywhere. It also may be the worst thing that's ever happened to us because it also spreads untruths, spreads lies. Um, but we're not going back here. Um, newspapers have to, and media organizations generally have to figure out ways to be more and more relevant to average people. Um, and the problem is, you know, that you've got a situation where people still think the internet should be free. Everything should be free. You can't, support a news gathering organization like a major newspaper if you give it away free right if you have paywalls up and, it, and again many of them do now at this point you know certainly the new york times does uh, uh washington post does you have paywalls up um and people don't they won't they won't pay for it i say i'm not going to get that okay well then you can go somewhere else for free news but what's the quality of that news right that's the problem is still that a lot of people believe stuff on the internet, it should just be free to everybody. But it can't be. You can't give away, if you're doing a value-added product, like breaking a, a, a scandal on a local school board, somebody's got to pay for that, right? So um, that's still the long-term challenge. It's people who think the internet should be free, um, who's going to pay for this service, this public service of, of you know being the watchdog? Um, and they haven't, we haven't really figured that out. So is that something where you think the major newspaper organizations should have gotten ahead of and try to figure out how can we convince people to pay for the service and well i mean in in in, they have convinced again you look at the online um um, enrollment of the washington post new york times in particular um but if you have people who maintain this feeling that well cable isn't free i pay for that but news should be free 
I'm not going to pay for a newspaper subscription online, right? Let alone a paper subscription. Um, then where do you get your news? Do you just get it from Reddit? Do you just get it from other online sources? Do you know that you have a feeling that what you read on Reddit is true? Is there, you know, is there a way to, to feel good that you're not being lied to about things or you can, you can separate the lies from the truth? That's really where we're at is people have to decide, um, you know, what's it worth to feel like you've got somebody who's higher on the truthiness scale. You can believe what they say as opposed to sources of information where you're not really sure you, you can't verify, let's say at that point. Well, even with the message boards, they're not reporting the news. They're just aggregating. So that means they're still posting a link to another news yeah, site, right. but it still needs news sites. Somebody's got to come up with the information, right? I mean, a lot of people do look at just aggregators of information. Twitter is essentially an aggregator of information, right? Just that, that Twitter doesn't dig anything out. It's just as a platform that people paste on. So um, yeah, ultimately somebody's got to pay for the, if information is being dug out somewhere that takes man or woman hours to dig it out, who's going to pay for that? And we're still at the point where we don't know. And certainly at the local level, um, which again is what I fear more than anything is the disappearance of local news gathering organizations, uh, local TV stations or, or uh, uh, newspapers or weeklies or whatever. Um, somebody's got to pay for this. Who's going to pay? Especially in a world where people still feel as if, you know, you look at the numbers on you know how few people have any even any savings, right, at all. Um, you ask them to, to pay for one more thing that they think they should get for free, they're not going to do it. What happened with Ohio and how did we get Trump? <laughs> it was a swing state, right? And now it's firmly red. And much of the rest no, of the No, I wouldn't say it's firmly red. Okay. I, I think the, the, the election just in November showed it, it, it's not firmly red because they reelected Sherrod Brown, who was a, the Democratic senator. But the governor and everybody else is a Republican. So even speak to that. How did, how did Sherrod Brown get elected there? Ohio, you could almost see it as the canary in the mine where people in Ohio were turning towards Trump and that was a sign of the whole nation. Yes. Ohio, if, no, if you haven't ever been to Ohio, it's, it really is a microcosm and it long has been a microcosm of the entire U.S. And when I say that, I mean because it has big cities, it has a lot of small towns, it's a lot of rural areas, a lot of farming done there, right? So it's kind of got everything. If you have Nebraska, you're basically a farm state. You don't really have a huge city. Ohio's always been this big city, small town, plus, you know, rural areas. So it really was a microcosm. And the fact is that no GOP presidential candidate has won without Ohio since Lincoln. If you were a GOP candidate, you had to win Ohio in order to be elected. And they went twice for Obama, by the way, both times Ohio went for Obama. So Trump wins Ohio 51.7% to 43.6% for Clinton. What happened? Well, in this microcosm, um, you had and still have a situation where a lot of jobs disappeared, especially with heavy industry jobs, steel, autos, that kind of stuff. Um, and they were never replaced. Good paying jobs still are hard to come by. So if you look at the unemployment rate in Ohio, it's 4.6% right now. National rate is 3.7%. California is 4.1%. So Ohio is still has among the states one of the highest unemployment rates. So what you had happen there with the decline of, and in particular autos, because autos, was, it was always, there were a lot, a, lot of, a lot of auto plants in Ohio when I was a kid. 
let's clarify that percentage because when people hear percentages like that, they often think that's evenly distributed across the state. And it's an average across the state. So meaning there can be parts of it where there's 100% employment and you could have a little area where there's nobody can get a job. Yeah. And in particular, the higher unemployment rates are in the small towns. There's just less opportunity. It's hard to imagine this, but you know, even to this day, there are small towns in Ohio where there's basically one manufacturing plant that supports the entire economy. That's the primary source of income in that, in that economy is, is one manufacturing plant. If you close that plant, what do you have? You got nothing. You got hopelessness. And that is what started happening in the 70s in Ohio and continued into the 80s, into the 90s. And what you get when you get you know, a situation where you're in the small town or even a bigger city, you can't find a job, right? Um, and what happens? You start to get drug addiction. Ohio's in one of the states hit very hard by the opioid addiction problem. Hopelessness sets in and you begin to feel as if we're never, we're never going to fix this. So what does Trump come along and offer? I'm going to bring back your factory jobs. I'm going to, you're going to be, have more jobs than you've ever had before. These are going to be good paying jobs. We're going to bring back factories. People were in Ohio and in many other places in this country, that he, that was a message they wanted to hear. He wanted to turn the clock back and restore manufacturing jobs that disappeared in the seventies, eighties, nineties, right? It was a lie. And it was a lie, not just that you can't bring these plants back, even if you could bring these plants back, and which is happening in parts of the country, guess what? They're going to be 90% automated. A plant that would have taken 900 workers right, to produce goods two decades ago now needs maybe 200 workers, basically computer programmers. right? But he essentially sold people a bill of goods that he was going to bring back these high-paying factory jobs. It hasn't really happened. Manufacturing is one of the easiest to automate, right, as far as jobs? Oh, totally. Right. Totally. And it's the future. I mean, would we any more say no to automation uh, than we would say no to the internet? That's essentially what the internet is. It's automating stuff, right? So so you've got this situation where hopelessness sets in. He tells him he's going to bring back these jobs. um, And- Yes, Ohio has benefited from the economic recovery that, you know, there's been more job growth, but it's still a state. Let me put it this way. There's 11 some million people in Ohio um, that is barely grown in a decade. There aren't a lot of jobs being created there as there are in other parts of the country. Um, and you don't have the immigration that you have in a large part, many parts of the country that where people come in and essentially create businesses. You don't have that there that, like you do say in California. So it's interesting because during the campaign, one of the things that I saw because I'm a child of the internet and when I wanted to watch football games, I would stream it from local affiliates in Michigan and Ohio and I got all their commercials. And what I saw was nothing but Trump ads over and over and over again. And I thought, I don't see a single Hillary one. So in the span of a game, between, let's say, Detroit Lions and the Giants, you would see four Trump ads. And I thought, oh, I wonder how this is going to turn out. Because you would, you knew that it was an Ohio or Michigan affiliate because they would cover certain things like Ann Arbor, blah, 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 or Youngson, so, so. And that's when I got early shades of, I don't think the Democratic Party and Hillary Clinton at large is prepared for this. You're absolutely right. They thought 
They thought Ohio will come with us just like Ohio went with Obama. They thought they didn't have to worry about that state. They thought they didn't have to worry about Michigan. They didn't have to worry about Wisconsin, Pennsylvania. They essentially said, we're not going to spend money here because we got these people locked up. They took those Democratic voters for granted. And it was a disaster, absolute disaster. How did Sherrod Brown do it then? Sherrod Brown is the, the, the Democratic senator from Ohio. Is He's very folksy. And he comes across as a man who genuinely cares about the average person, the average worker. This isn't an incredibly rich guy, right? He comes across as a nice guy who wants to help solve your problems. People in Ohio, I mean, the one thing I'll say, you know, having grown up there, it was never a radical place. It was always a centrist place, right? People didn't ever want to be too far left, but they also didn't want to be too far right. Trump got them to come over further right because they felt as if the Democrats had nothing to offer them anymore. The Democrats took them for granted. You know, let me, this is partly Obama's fault. Obama didn't start talking about the opioid crisis until basically the last year of his term. Why the Democrats let this go, why they thought that, that people wouldn't notice or, or you know, they, they thought Trump was a joke and people were too stupid to follow him. But when you're hopeless and somebody like him comes around, right, you're going to grab onto that. And that's exactly what happened. However, what Sherrod Brown, the Democrats' reelection in November shows is that Ohio is not going to, if they feel like you're working for them, they're not going to throw you out of office. So now we've got a situation where there's this plant in Northeast Ohio, a GM plant that manufactured uh, one of their small cars, the, the Chevy Cruze, I think. That's one of the plants they just announced they're shutting down. This is the part of Ohio that went crazy for Trump. He told them he was going to bring back factory jobs. Now, one of their biggest plants is closing. I'm not sure this is going to sit well. I will actually wonder if the, if the GM announcement had happened before the election, um, if Sherrod Brown would have won by even more points. And maybe if the uh, Republican candidate for governor uh, would, would, would have been defeated by the Democrat. This, can, this is terrible for Trump in Northeast Ohio because these very high paying jobs at this GM plant are now going down the drain. But the way Trump uses Twitter, he's very quick to do damage control and he already blamed that on Sherrod Brown. Yeah, but again, people aren't stupid. Uh, uh, you know, they, they may be hopeless, but they're not stupid. And wait, that, let's clarify that. So I think a lot of people, when they were running the campaigns for the Democrats, they confused hopelessness with stupid. And yeah. that's not necessarily the same thing. And sometimes that might mean there's an overlap in voting, but there are two different feelings. What is hopeless for people in Ohio? What does that feel hopeless like? Hopeless is, is you're in a small town and there's been no job growth in that town and your kid's graduating from high school and the kid uh, isn't college material, but um, obviously needs a job somewhere and can't find a job there. So the kid says, I'm going to leave. I'm going to leave. I'm going to go to the Sun Belt. I'm going to go to Texas. I'm going to go somewhere else. And the, the town hollows out even more. The more young people leave, right? The town economy hollows out and it just spirals. So you still have the problem there, especially in a lot of the small towns where um, there isn't job growth to keep people there. Now, you take a city like Columbus, Ohio, which is in the center of the state and the state capital, booming, booming economy. A lot of kids leave those small towns in Ohio, leave, leave the farms and go to Columbus because they can find jobs. Even if it's just as a waiter, at least it's a job. So um, 
that's still the number one issue, uh, as it is the number one issue for the country, is still not just creating jobs, but creating jobs that will last, right? Creating jobs uh, where there's a skill level, where somebody's contributing something, where they won't just be laid off in the next time the economy hiccups, right? Because they're, they're of greater value to their employer. We still don't have enough of those jobs. You know, it's also interesting because when you mentioned jobs within the Rust Belt states, I know within coal industry, they they have right now about 50,000 employees. But one of the things that a lot of people don't realize is that retail jobs have suffered losses close to 100,000, which is almost double what the coal mining jobs have. And it's more than coal mining and steel workers combined. Yeah. So so why is tr- Trump should be out there campaigning for, uh, you know, saving the jobs of, of clerks in, in the Gap store, right? That's where the major job losses have happened. To say we're going to bring back the coal business, we're going to bring back the steel business, even if you bring it back to some level, it's going to be more and more automated. You're not going to create jobs there. He He's out of touch. He wants to take us back to the 1950s. That ship has sailed. 2020, how important is it for somebody on the Democratic side to run on things like you talked about opioids, so healthcare and guaranteeing people jobs or having some kind of plan to make sure that people can work. We're going to have a plethora of 2020 Democratic candidates, and they'll probably each one have their issues for their niche market, right? But how important is that? Jobs and healthcare. How can they run on anything else? How, how can you have any platform that isn't based on running on job creation and providing people with health care? You'll, you'll die. I mean, that's, that is what is going to motivate people because that's all that really matters in life when you boil it down. Do I have a job? Can my kids get a job? And do I have health care coverage or am I going to be bankrupt, right, if I get a cancer diagnosis? Well, how much of people's bankruptcies and economic disasters is because of health care? It's huge. It's huge. Isn't that one of the biggest reasons for bankruptcy is medical bankruptcy? Absolutely. It's true. You know, you, when you have people who have no savings, what happens if they suddenly incur a $50,000 medical bill? What are they supposed to do? You have to declare bankruptcy. I know it's within the industry itself because I work specifically within health insurance. One of those things after ACA, and it's not without its problems, but medical bankruptcies have gone down because it's one of those things where if you force the carriers to say, well, you can't charge more than so-and-so, or if that's a pre-existing condition, you can't say that's a $50,000 bill that they have to pay, like you said. It could be, well, no, you can't charge more than 5000 The rest you have to cop you have to either cover or the federal government will step in and say, okay, we'll cover the rest of the cost. I'm 62 years old. I'm stunned that we don't have socialized medicine essentially right now. There's, there is no way 20 years from now, we were not going to have more socialized medicine in this country. It, it, the system can't work. We already do though. We already do, but I'm, we, I'm we talking have about for just half the people, half the people, right? Exactly. <laughs> who are over a certain age, they get socialized. Exactly, exactly. The rest of us don't. Right. So it, it, it's crazy to think that we're not going to have that. You, you won't have a consumer class because people will be spending all of their whatever left money they have on healthcare. You, we can't keep going down so this road. So with the Affordable Care Act, it's either there or we get more, but we're not going to go below what the Affordable Care Act did. I, I, I just don't see how. I mean, this, this is the number one voter issue for many people. This is why a lot of people, this is why you got the blue wave. This is a big reason why you got the blue wave. Well, even the, in the, the states, wave. right, that had red waves where even for them, they did things to expand Medicaid. Yes, absolutely. 
absolutely true. So again, we're headed down that path. There's no other way. And, um, you know, how come so much of the world does it and we think we can't? Even right-wing countries have it. Exactly. Exactly. It's funny that you mentioned that you said there's no way. And I don't see how you can run on a platform without jobs and healthcare. I think the Democrats will find a way to run on a platform and not address those two. If there's one thing I can count on the Democrats <laughs> to do, it's lose professionally. It's, you can, it's like a sitcom where everything seems to go just right and then they miss a step or they do something wrong and you're like oh you lost that how did you do it it'd be a basketball game where you're 90 to 60 and you have five minutes left it's like now we got this and then next thing you know you have a who's that one player that had that incredible turn like a tracy mcgrady where he just turns everything around the last minute like how'd you lose that you were so far ahead (laughs) and now you know okay if we run on these two platforms and we have a solution we have a really good shot. And they'll be like, we should impeach Trump. It's like, no, don't do that. Why are you doing this? You're pouring a lot of money, a lot of energy. Hey, why waste your energy on that? I mean, right. I, I mean, look, if the People Democrats- People need hope, right? To your hopelessness, they need to fight it with hope, right? Exactly. Yeah. But, so, hello, Clinton, hope, right? The audacity of hope. But, but I mean, you know Obama, what? I'll, I'll say this, Paul. If, if the Democrats don't run on jobs and healthcare, then they deserve to lose. And, and, and we as a country deserve whatever we get after that. I mean, it's just, it's just incredible to me that they didn't learn their lesson. They haven't learned their lesson by now. Um, so, you know, I'm optimistic because I think you saw, you saw this blue wave, which is come on winning, you know, flipping 40 seats, you know, to the Dems. That is, that was a big win. That was a big win. I think what people are telling us is that, um, you know, Enough of the country doesn't want to steer crazy to the right. They're willing to go to the center or more to the left. And this is there's a brilliant line that's that I don't even remember who who said it way back when, but it stuck with me. You know, this when the founding fathers wrote the Constitution, and um, so that members of the House of Representatives have to be elected every two years, reelected every two years. And in this day and age, we kind of think it's nuts because. You know, the soon as they're elected, they have to start their campaign for re-election. Two years is just not that long a time, right? It seems like it'd be more reasonable to have, you know, you have a six-year term for senators. It seems like it'd be much more reasonable and, and logical from a governing standpoint to have a House of Representatives term be four years. But here's the beauty of being having the, the House re-elected every two years. And this is what someone said, and I wish I could remember the guy who's, who, or woman, whoever said it. Having this system lets the people grab the steering wheel back every two years, right? The president is a four-year term. The Senate is, the people, if they're upset with the way things are going, if the country is steering too far to the left, the people can grab the steering wheel and pull it in the other direction. And that's the beauty of it. And, you know, that's, that's what the people did. They grabbed the steering wheel in this, in this election and turned it away from the right, more to the center, more to the left. And that's a very hopeful sign to me. Trump made people care about midterms again. Well, he, he did. I mean, and let's face, you know, he's still got his base and it's, it's a powerful, powerful base. Um, these people, like I said, they're never going to desert. And that old line he used about, I could walk onto Fifth Avenue and shoot somebody and my voters would still vote for me. I don't think that's fantasy. I think that's absolutely, these people have waited. He's the Messiah and they are not going to leave him. He's their only hope, Obi-Wan. With the midterms and even in some ways, Trump, what we learned was that even with the right, as far as regular people, not big money, it seems like they might not be willing to go far left as far as every, every social issue, but economically, they're willing to go more left. 
Yes, I think so. I, I think because what people are, are, have come to understood is that or understand is that um, the, the, remember the George Bush the, the line that you the ownership society everybody's going to own a piece of this and he, they talk about privatizing Social Security so that you know you would have your Social Security and you would invest it yourself in the stock market or whatever you can't do this I mean on some on some point on some level you have to have enough of a safety net that is a government safety net that keeps people from falling to the ground, right? And 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 just and essentially the economy falling apart. You have to have some kind of safety net. That safety net was sh- began to be shredded under Reagan. He's the one who canceled a lot of the mental health. Why do we have homeless today? It began under Reagan when they started closing the mental hospitals and people started ending, ending on the street. When I was a kid, and for your younger listeners, you know, there was no such thing as homeless. Every town had a hobo, right? Yet a guy who was the, the hobo who you know, rode the train from town to town or whatever, a wino, something like that. One wino, you know, per 20 square blocks. There was no, nobody was homeless. Nobody was homeless. This today is a situation we could never have imagined as kids, these tent cities in, in, in major cities in America. So speaking of Reagan, I know a lot of times what's tied to his administration and his legacy are the tax cuts. So is that something that has ever worked or what are the effects of them? So we just had this huge Trump tax cut. How do we finance this tax cut? Well, uh, eventually they told us, you know, supply side economics again, eventually the economy is going to grow so fast that it's going to generate tax revenue that's going to pay for this tax cut. However, in the first year, what has happened? The federal deficit, the amount the government's, you know, in, in the whole in one year is $1 trillion. So the government's had to go out and, bo- and borrow dramatically to fund this tax cut, right? So you bring up Reagan. This is a very interesting one. Reagan in 1981 got Congress to pass this massive tax cut. They cut the uh, highest tax rate for individuals from 70% down to 50%. Um, They cut corporate taxes. They rolled back um, uh, some of the regulation. People forget that in 1982, one year after that tax cut, the Congress had to roll back a third, fully one third of that tax cut. Why? Because the government deficit was beginning to soar. And the Congress looked at this and said, oh, my God, this is like, you know, this is crazy. Right. We, so they roll back fully one third. One year later, they roll back a third of this and they continue to roll back. They couldn't keep those promises. They couldn't keep those promises because supply side wasn't worth the idea of let's just give all the money or more of the money to corporations and they'll invest and they'll build plants and, and they'll create jobs. And then there'll be the, the, you know, the echo effect and more people working, more people buying stuff. And it wasn't happening. So again, nowadays, look, we gave corporations this gigantic tax cut this time around. And then everyone said, oh, well, surely what's going to happen is you're going to have a boom and companies are going to be spending money on plants and equipment, capital spending. This right? time it'll work. This time it'll work. <laughs> Let me just throw out three numbers here. This is for the third quarter. This is for the uh, Standard & Poor's 500 companies, which are the biggest blue chip companies in, in, in the country. What did they spend on in the third quarter, uh, end of September 30th? They spent $162 billion on capital spending. Well, that was a lot of money, right? And that was actually up 16% from the third quarter of a year ago. That's pretty good. Except when you look at, they spent $194 billion 
to buy back their own stock. <laughs> a 50% increase from a year earlier. They didn't invest this in new plants and equipment or more employees. They bought back their own shares to try to boost the value of the remaining shares in the marketplace. 50% increase in buybacks year over year versus a 16%, 1-6% increase <laughs> in capital spending. Does that sound like this supply side crap is working? It's financial sleight of hand. It's financial sleight of hand, but let's, let's be fair to companies here. If you had such incredible demand for your product worldwide, you would build another plant because you would see the rationale for building that plant to produce more. However, back to what we were talking about earlier, would you build a plant that would employ a thousand people if you could employ, if you could build a plant that had machines that allowed you to only have 200 people? Of course, you're going to choose the automated plant. And that is what they're doing. Companies are being rational about this. But the point being, <laughs> this is not going to spur some drastic capital spending un unless the global economy was roaring. Now, the global economy actually looked very strong earlier this year. Now what's happening? Okay, Europe is slowing down drastically. The whole Brexit thing, the German economy actually contracting in the third quarter. What's happening in Asia? Look at the tariff situation. The Chinese economy has slowed down to the slowest pace since 2009. Let's go a little bit, little bit more onto the tariffs. How is that scaring economic growth? Well, you know, Trump is tariff man. And Trump says, I'm going to put tariffs on your products. If I think that your products, uh, you're undercutting us in, in some way, you, you, you know, you, you don't charge enough for your products or your government subsidizes your products or whatever. So you put this tariff on and you raise the prices of imported goods. Wait, going back to price the goods, who ultimately pays for the tariffs? The consumers who price this, right? If the, if the, pr the price of the product goes up because you put these tariffs on it, we, the consumers, have to pay more. Right. I don't think people know that. No, they don't know it. They don't get it. You're going to pay more for your imported car because he's putting tariffs on them, right? So Mr. Tariff Man is, is you know, messing with the whole economic flow here. And yes, does China have a state-sponsored economy? Of course they do. Do you think they're going to stop that overnight? And, and of course they're not. And this, I mean, it's becoming more communist in, in terms of government than less communist, even though they're trying to keep capitalism going. So the point being, Trump, again, has sold people a bill of goods. And he thought he could just put these tariffs on and companies would back down immediately. He still Now they have a truce between the U.S. and China. We're going we're gonna to work this out. Well, what's the... What's the payoff for the Chinese? Are they going to are they going to cave into Donald Trump? Why should they? Donald Trump may last another two years. The Chinese look a hundred or a thousand years ahead, right? They're not thinking about Trump. They're thinking about what do we have to do that benefits our economy so that we're in better shape ten years from now? Because he certainly is not going to be president in ten years. He may not be president after two years. So do we suddenly think the Chinese are going to just give in to him, give him everything he wants? It's not going to happen. We have more to lose than we have do. more to lose. He's going to declare victory no matter what. But if you really want to stop the flow of cheap Chinese, cheap Chinese goods into this into this country, right? What do you think is going to happen to what people pay at Walmart and Target? What happens if you you play real hardball with the Chinese and you we all know you look at the label of almost anything, right? It's made in China, made in Taiwan. Made well, that's in essentially inflation again, then. You know, Asia is the manufacturing center of the world now for many things. And you can't put that genie back in the bottle, right? That's out. So if you st suddenly start putting tariffs on stuff and you force Chinese manufacturers to raise prices on the goods that Americans buy at their target of Walmart, how happy will American consumers be if they're paying double for the clothing? 
double for the tchotchkes, right? Double for the, the, you know, the plastic kitchenware or whatever. You think they're not going to notice this? That could cause economic problems here too because our goods go up. Of course it could. There's just not the money to spend. So he doesn't seem to get it. He doesn't seem to understand this. But, you know, a, a rich man like him who just is out has always been bankruptcy. You know, when he screws up at a company, <laughs> I just clear bankruptcy and move on, start another company with other people's money. So he doesn't really get this. He doesn't understand it. What happens if the U.S. goes bankrupt? Well, we can't, you can't, you know, really technically a country can't go bankrupt because you can always print money. Exactly. So what's the difference between a recession, which you explained earlier, versus a depression? How much worse is a depression? Well, a depression would be a really an utter collapse of the economy and recession with some layoffs. Recession is like, recession is an unemployment rate that got up to whatever it was around 10%. But the unemployment rate in, in uh, you know, during the depression, I think the effective unemployment rate was somewhere like close to 20 or 25%. I mean, I mean you, ha- you had to have the government step in with those projects back then. You just put, you know, you had unemployed, able-bodied men in their 20s who had nothing to do, right? Well, if you don't feed them, they're going to steal. They're going to do something. That, you know, you're going to destroy your economy. They'll destroy it if it comes down to feeding themselves or their families, which Roosevelt understood, which is why you had those public works programs. But a depression, number one, it would have to be global. You couldn't have the U.S. fall into a depression um, and China and Asia and Europe not, not be in a depression too. Could it happen? You know, it's possible it could happen. Um, but I think what you would have to have would probably be uh, people completely losing faith in government's ability to keep the economies going, and perhaps more importantly, in central banks' abilities to keep the financial system sound. Again, this was what was collapsing in 2008, which is why the Fed did what it did. So that's what they were afraid, right? The U.S. would collapse and it would create a domino effect with all the central banks. Yes. And instead of inflation, you would get deflation because people wouldn't spend money on anything. Therefore, companies would have to lay off more workers because there wasn't demand for their product. That just begins to snowball. The, the, you know, the fewer employees you have, they have less money. They don't buy things. You have that snowball effect. And, you know, you have to, if you're a student of history, you know that the, the country, the world was starting to come out of uh, depression in about, in certainly by uh, 34, 35, 36. We were going back into depression by 37 or 38. And what began to happen was uh, the Nazification of Germany and they started the armaments buildup. So, and what, what really arguably was the only thing that solved the depression was World War II, which unfortunately you had to burn the village in order to save it. You had factories revving up, people you know, building munitions. I mean, you put the, your workforce was fully employed. Um, not a happy thought to think you need another world war to start over again, but that was the reality of the depression was solved by World War II. I think a lot of Republicans and even some Democrats look back at Reagan with rose-colored glasses, but with his supply side trickle-down economic theories, not only did we have two savings and loan crises and a market crash, but that was the reason why George H.W. Bush didn't get reelected, right? Because of all the promises that Reagan made, Bush had to raise taxes. And he said at the beginning, read my lips, no yeah, new taxes. Famous read my lips. And nobody yes. could keep the promises that Reagan made. And even George H.W. tried to keep the same plan going. And it was bound to fail and he had to raise taxes. And that's part of the reason why he lost to Clinton. But my point is, is that history has proven that doesn't work. 
I think the country was ready for a baby boomer. And Clinton came along, the audacity of hope. Remember, the economy was not in recession in 92. The I thought audacity of hope is Obama. Uh, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, actually, that's uh, uh, Clinton was, I'm from a town called Hope. Remember, I'm from a town called Hope oh, in Arkansas. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that, that he, he, he started it. Then Obama came with the other audacity of hope. But anyway, it's still audacious. Anyway, um, so you have an economy that is growing not that fast in 92, but it's certainly, you know, it's not, you're not in recession. You have um, a baby boomer, a, you know, a smooth talker like Clinton who comes up and he tells people things can, we can make, we can make a better economy for everybody. In the same way that Jimmy Carter came along in 76 and, you know, that was post Nixon. So Jerry Ford, who was, you know, the guy who pardoned Nixon was running against Carter. Um 76 was like this one golden year in the 1970s. The early 70s were miserable in terms of, of, of the economy. 74, oil prices quadruple. But by 76, thing, things seemed to be stabilizing. You had the bicentennial of the country then. I remember this because I was still young, but 76 was like this happy year. And the country was like, yeah, let's give a chance to this peanut farmer from Georgia. You know, how much, how, you know, things are getting better. He can't screw it up too bad. So they elect Jimmy Carter. And um, because of this, this, you know, gush of happiness and everything. And two years later, things are, and it's a disaster again. The economy's going to hell, inflation's rising. So in the same way, you know, there was a sort of this burst of optimism in 92. Let's try something new. And Clinton comes along. But one of the things that Clinton did bring up and people used to care about was the deficit. And there was already a deficit under Reagan and then under Bush. A huge deficit started under those two and, and got worse. And that was one of the things that Clinton would talk about. So yes. Back then, that was another thing where people weren't, I think they were old enough to remember what deficits can do. And they were also getting fearful of that. Exactly. The, the, you know, part of what made the stock market so happy in the 1990s uh, and, and bond investors as well was that the deficits were dropping. And... Um, by the time you got to 2000, Clinton was, I think they were running a small surplus, which had not happened since, you know, the Vietnam War, before the Vietnam War. So it's pretty amazing to think about that. And then what happened? George W. gets into office and to fund more tax cuts and to fund the Iraq War. Well, going into it, Bill Clinton created a surplus, right? We weren't in a deficit. We had extra money. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, the, because the economy was that. roaring. Right. The economy was roaring in the late 1990s. People a lot don't realize of it was tech that. Based. Yeah. It was a great economy. I remember Clinton giving a speech about how um, uh, by the late 90s, you know, we don't have a single person to spare in this economy. We need everybody working in this economy. There is you know, such demand for all this. But a lot of it was driven by tech. You know, a lot of it. And, th and those were jobs that were there one day and gone the next because they were companies that had no real prospects, even if people gave them funding. They had no no real shot at it. But that's what capitalism is. People make stupid mistakes all the time like that. And the system clears itself out, sometimes worse than others. And then Bush burned through whatever economic growth that we had at that time. And then it wasn't until the invasion of Iraq that we had to start borrowing money again. Uh, right. And then all the deregulations that he did led in. And, and the tax cuts again. So the recipe seems the same. So let me ask you about deregulation. Especially when we think about from the perspective of now global warming and the pollution problem, Reagan and GW and a lot of Republicans kind of feel like you deregulate private companies and they'll figure it out and it'll sort itself out. But what happens to global warming? Like, will companies figure it out on their own and stop the pollution and start trying to reverse it? Or do you need sometimes people to step in and be like, no, you got to stop doing this? Would you trust corporations to do 
the right thing for society at large, or would you trust them to do what's only good for them? I'm not talking about, I mean, at the margin, yes, companies will make decisions that maybe are good. And, and obviously more companies are trying to be green and they're, they're saying that to the millennials, we are a green company. But ultimately, do you trust corporations? Remember that it was a few years ago, there was an indie movie that was um, looked, at all, looked at all the traits that a psychopath showed. <laughs> and they showed every one of those traits was what a corporation <laughs> what a corporation did and, and acted like was that corporations basically are psychopathic ent entities um, and, and really are not for the most part going to look out for the greater good, but only look out for, for number one. So I, I don't think you're going to turn this movement around. And I think not just millennials, but the children are millennials now. You know, they learn from the earliest age in school about pollution and about being green and turning lights off and all this stuff. I think once you get that built into kids' psyches, they don't lose that. They, they want to continue that. And that's a good thing. But boomers, we didn't have this, didn't feel like, you know, this sword was hanging over our heads because there was none of this talk back then about, you know, I don't know where we thought the pollution was going. You know, if we didn't think it was going it was into the air and then what, into outer space? No, it wasn't leaving the planet. It was staying here. It was going into the ocean. But science didn't understand until the late 90s, even in the 2000s, just how bad the situation had gotten. And now we're debating whether it's too late. On that hopeful note, <laughs> thank you, Tom, for always coming be, in. Always be optimistic. Humans can figure it out if they really want to. <laughs>